think that we're all kind of like well aware that there's certainly lots of like doom and gloom about in uh, <laughs> our default media paradigms mm-hmm. and you know like I mean for me it started like on a personal level with this basically existential dread and existential mm-hmm. angst about like how to create mm-hmm. meaning in this very finite life but then on a larger civilizational le- le- level um, I'm not sure how familiar your um, listeners are with the term of existential risk but mm-hmm. there's certainly also this predicament that we're currently in this time of technological development where we are facing a number of you know self-inflicted potential risks um, uh, courtesy of the technologies that we're developing uh, including from AI but also biotechnology risks so those are risks that could really destroy the entire playing field of civilization um, if not addressed properly. And so I think these kind of like first this feeling of like, you know, own personal existential angst, but then also this kind of like larger existential risk that's really looming uh, across civilization, I think can make one relatively, you know, just like pretty disillusioned, if not all the way depressed uh, mm-hmm. about the state of the world and potential future prospects. And so we're trying to counteract this with this lens of existential uh-huh. hope. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of a head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is the leader of an organization that is dedicated to the development of high impact technologies that are focused on several fields of science, from molecular nanotechnology to brain computer interfaces, space exploration, crypto commerce, and AI. She is a known speaker, trainer, presenter, and has had numerous media appearances about her organization's work to gather leading minds to advance research and accelerate progress towards what she calls flourishing futures. An interesting conversation ahead, but before we get into this, here's a brief message. U.S. Private Capital Forum Go Real 2023 launched now with on-demand sessions offering attendees the utmost flexibility to access industry-specific content and deals on their terms. It will bring together over 100 speakers from across Europe over a broad agenda covering private equity, venture capital, real estate and private debt. For details, visit www.eurosforum.org. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Alison DeWetman is the president and CEO of Foresight Institute. She directs the intelligent cooperations, molecular machines, biotech and health extensions, neurotech and space groups, fellowships, prizes and tech trees. She not only shares the work of Foresight with the public, but has had a number of media appearances and done speeches on various topics relating to AI, computing and technology development, which we will talk about in the course of this discussion. She founded existentialhope.com, co-edited Superintelligence, Coordination and Strategy, co-authored Gaming the Future, and co-initiated the Longevity Prize. Academically, she holds an MS in Philosophy and Public Policy from the London School of Economics, focusing on AI safety, and a BA in PPE from York University. 
Finally, Alison and her organisation is one of the partners of this Neurotech series on Heads Talk. Let's now have a conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Alison to this new series. Delighted to have you here today. Hi, Lynn. Thanks so much for having me. It's yeah, quite a pleasure to be here with you. Um, okay, the best way to, to, to start this conversation is for you to tell my listeners about Foresight Institute. Um, I briefly mentioned it in the introduction, but for my listeners and in your own words, how did it start? Who's involved, the team, and what do you do? Yeah, well, that's quite a big question because Foresight <laughs> has been around since 1986, and I've only been with it for 11 years at this point, so I'm fairly new, uh, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the organization really was founded on this long-term promise of ambitious technologies at the time of founding the main focus was on molecular nanotechnology mm-hmm. um, that was kind of like back then really the kind of number one upcoming technology at the time and and I think that it's so interesting now that you know I'm kind of like with foresight in the present day it's still like really back and coming again this time really driven by I think advances in simulation and modeling so mm-hmm. I, I, AI technologies as well so in a nutshell it was really one of the earliest future-facing organizations in the Bay Area that I think really had this pretty Mm -hmm. ambitious long-term kind of goals about the future, but Mm -hmm. that was really mostly uh, constituents, um, uh, whose whose most constituents were like scientists and technologists. So it's like a pretty like hard science and tech-driven community Mm -hmm. uh, that nevertheless cares a lot about interdisciplinarity and like uh, kind of pushing the types of science and technology forward that don't really have a home in normal institutional Mm -hmm. settings. Mm -hmm. With a with a really um kind of like long, um breath for the future. Okay, well, well, it has some longevity. I I wasn't aware that it was uh, around since nineteen eighty nine. I thought it was fairly younger than that. So so thanks for that. So who, who's involved in that and, and the team? Could you give us a flavour of what's going on there? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've been around since nineteen eighty six. Just I wanted to mention this. Oh, sorry, I said eighty nine. Um, but no. It's all good. It's all good. I mean, at that point, um, you know, it's uh, it's definitely longer than I've been around. So uh, that's always really nice to see. And you <laughs> yeah, know, I, I think wanted to say that, but then yeah, I thought well, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's correct, and I think it's really nice to just. I mean, for me at least, you know, what attracted me to foresight when I was still in the UK was this kind of like really positivity about the future. So mm-hmm. looking into our archives, we had one of the early websites um, back in the days, which is why mm-hmm. we got the URL foresight.org. But um, basically looking into our archives uh, online, um, I've rarely ever seen like a more positive organization about the future uh, without really being Pollyannish. So there were lots of like very early stage technologists that now really have qu- made quite the name for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we... Really, like we're really serious about long-term technological development uh, mm-hmm. from a like hard scientific lens and I think you know currently like the way basically how the machinery works is that we have these different focus areas and um, mm-hmm. those are like roughly our buckets of technologies that where we're trying to create very early stage ecosystems around and mm-hmm. so if there's one kind of like common thread around them is that you know like most of the technologies and the areas that we support are really early stage or they're really ambitious and they're kind of like in this niche area yet where they don't haven't really found an institutional home yet, whether that's the private sector or the public sector or, or, or whatever it may be. But um, this is one molecular nanotechnology. So that's like really like still the early stage technology that we've been focused on since forever in a day, really. Yeah. And then it's biotech and rejuvenation. And so that's, um, you know, partly a factor like because back in the days, 
uh, that was one of the main interest areas of people that were interested in foresight and you know recently it's uh it's it's, it's become like a, a little bit more on vogue but like even six years ago when we used to do conferences on this topic it was um yeah still very early yeah. um yeah. then in addition to biotech and rejuvenation we have newer technologies but i'm sure that we'll dive into a little yeah. bit more today uh and then we have decentralized computing so this is like anything that looks at like more trustworthy safe computing technologies uh, especially mm -hmm. in relationship to ai um mm -hmm. and then finally uh, another bucket is like space technologies and this is you know like anything from short-term bits like you know satellite technologies to longer-term stuff like asteroid mining and when i say that we support these types of technologies what i mean with that is that we do a mix of different things that are all i think you know have proven useful over the years for early ecosystem development one of them is that we have a fellowship in these areas so we usually support early stage career scientists or uh, folks that are starting uh, new ventures in these areas mm -hmm. through mentorship, uh, through invitations to relevant workshops and through public exposure and so forth. And mm -hmm. uh, then the second thing is that we have prizes in these areas. So for example, for molecular nanotechnology, we've had the Feynman prize now um, for over, well, about, I think, 20 years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and we also have these uh, in-person workshops and virtual seminar groups okay where we're basically trying to grow a little bit of a larger community around these technologies. So there's a bunch of different tools, you know, that yeah. you can use to do early stage, early stage science and tech development. And we're trying to kind of apply them you know, oh, to these that's various. Good. That's good. So, so, you, so you've given us a sort of a sense of the projects that you're involved with, um, as well as um, some of the stuff that comes out of the, the technical group that you mentioned at the very, very start of this. In in my research, in in looking at Foresight Institute and looking at yourself, because you know you sort of do a certain individual you're going to talk to, the thing that kept popping up a lot was the existential hope dot com or existential hope project. I mean, I've looked at it and I've read it. I just want you to share with my um, listeners what is that all about? Because if you do a search on Alison Duet. Or the Foresight Institute that pops up all the time, and uh, almost like is it like a, the key project um, in your organization? Just just tell us what uh, what's that all about? Yeah, well, I mean, like, look, so you know, the bits that I just mentioned are really hard science and tech focused, right? Like, so we really are trying to mm -hmm. uh, push the needle in new technology development. But eventually, you kind of like ask yourself, of like, why are we doing all of this stuff? And so the existential hope kind of lens on the technologies, this philosophical coding and the philosophical mm -hmm. kind of lens of like, why are we trying to advance technologies in the first place, right? We don't just like want them for no reason. We want them usually because specific types of technologies at least are really like the main driver in giving us better futures. Um, and so I think that it's really this kind of like layer of looking at the work that we do mm -hmm. from this deeply hopeful lens about the future. I think that we're all Kind of like well aware that there's currently lots of like doom and gloom about in uh, <laughs> our default media paradigms mm -hmm. and you know like I, I mean for me it started like on a personal level with this basically existential dread and existential mm -hmm. angst about like how to create mm -hmm. meaning in this very finite life but then on a larger civilizational le le level um i'm not sure how familiar your um, listeners are with the term of existential risk but mm -hmm. there's certainly also this predicament that we're currently in this time of technological development where we are facing a number of you know self-inflicted potential risks um uh, courtesy of the technologies that we're developing uh, including from ai but also biotechnology risks so those are risks that could really destroy the entire playing field of civilization um if not addressed properly and so i think 
these kind of like first this feeling of like you know own personal existential angst but then also this kind of like larger existential risk that's really looming uh, across civilization i think can make one relatively you know just like pretty disillusioned if not all the way depressed uh, mm -hmm. about the state of the world and potential future prospects and so we're trying to counteract this with this lens of existential mm -hmm. hope Mm -hmm. And so this website, existentialhope.com, is really about like, A, you know, collecting art pieces, collecting uh, writings, this can be fiction, nonfiction, yes. um, of like specific futures that are positive, that are built with science and technology, um, and that can really give people the, this kind of beacon of hope in this like just other area to focus on rather than the futures that we don't want to be racing towards because our fear is really that by focusing too much on the futures we don't want to be kind of end up making them a self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecy because we can't really build anything in this set. Uh, that, that would explain the sort of um, the sort of the upbeat, the positive nature of um, when, when I looked through Foresight Institute and I looked through the existential sites, existential hope sites, sorry, there's a, there's an, and even your videos and, and listening to your videos and give a speech, there's a sort of a positive upbeat and that's, Sounds to me like it's deliberate. Yeah, it's deliberate. I mean, um, I think that there's certainly times when, you know, like I think individually people at Fawcett feel also a bit blip, just a bit blip about the future. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, like just remembering how far we got here yeah. uh, or like how far our ancestors, um, you know, had to come to get, make us get here. And, you know, looking back at history and just appreciating, like, I think first it starts with just sheer gratitude at, like, the types of life that many of us, not all of us, but, like, many of us are able to to live on an everyday life. Um, Those are just, like, sh nothing short but mi miraculous, even seen from, like, you know, mm -hmm. 150, 200 years ago. Um, and I think that, you know, just, like, appreciating what we already have right now. Um, and then, you know, like, taking it one step further and, like, realizing that actually there's so much more available and that there's no principal reason for why we can't achieve those things for civilization. Mm -hmm. um, I think like these two realizations are like, you know, really all that we need to at least not get too beaten up every day um, about, you know, about the many problems that we still have to face. So I think it starts with A, you know, how far have we come? And then B, like there's nothing principally, even though if it looks sometimes like the chances are small, but there's really nothing in principle. Um, that prevents us from getting like two really amazing futures for everyone. Mm. Okay, okay, that's good. Um, in the introduction, I mentioned that your organization, uh, and I quote, gathers leading minds to advance research and accelerate progress towards flourishing futures. Your words. Um, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a really great question. It's I don't really know what the magic sauce is. It just so happened. <laughs> um, so I think that like we were lucky because having been one of the only games in town for a really, really long time when it comes to like, you know, positive futurism mm -hmm. um, and, and and doing that from a science and tech focused lens, we accumulated a bunch of folks over time that were at that point very early on, like early in their careers and have now made it quite far. And so they remember Fawcett as like a kernel in their life that like, you know, that mm -hmm. they were reliant on to form a community around these technologies. And so I think it started with really like a few individuals that um you know that we had unique access to that were not only interested in one technology area but like in multiple ones so that's like one kind of thing that people have in common here mm -hmm. uh, at Fawcett is that oftentimes they don't just care about their own technological niche but they realize that the technology or that that futures have to be built um through a variety of different technologies and oftentimes I think the 
most interesting progress opportunities are at the intersection of current technological paradigms. Um, anyway, so like I think it started with this kernel of like early believers and with this kernel of like them having found their community through Foresight. And then from that, we really just kind of like um, kickstarted this virtual seminar series, which then allowed people from around the world to join. So we had this application form during COVID, we started a virtual seminar series and that was just much more accessible than mm -hmm. our in-person workshops that were always in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. We did travel around like a bit before we went through like a variety of like Ivy League universities, for example, to like co-host workshops with them. But we were always like, it was always very small. You know, it was always like 40, 50 people at one workshop on molecular nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. And that's just not something where you can really kind of like open up uh, the floodgates, uh, so to speak. And, and then mm -hmm. I think with the mm -hmm. virtual seminar series, we had an application form. And so now we have these seminar series that are like within these ecosystems of around 300 to foreign people that people can apply to on the website um that uh you know allow us to cast a little bit of a wider net and through that because we publish them on youtube afterwards for those folks that can't join um there's there's now like there, there was now a little bit more of a kind of like selling point online where people could flock to and i think since then uh we have we've definitely just seen like a, an an increase in uptake and uh, mm. and people that just find us uh from on the internet really well, that's good. That's good. So, so where does um, DSI fit into all of this, if at all? This is your mission to decentralize science. Yeah, well, I think that um, DSI was kind of always a natural to us to the extent that, you know, we, we've we had this one of our technology buckets that people were interested in was always decentralized computing and, and decentralized intelligence. And, um, and so, you know, I think we were always pushing for this bucket of technological development, like um, you know, cryptographic technologies and decentralized computing technologies, separately as one technology area that we care about, and then you know, recently it's really become not just one of many technology areas, but it has become kind of gradually the layer through which we can push the other technology buckets or like areas along, and uh, so it's been like I think philosophically always pretty deeply enshrined with foresight. We just had from a personal perspective like a big overlap with the early cypherpunk movement um and so just like you know on a yeah on a on a, on a people level um i think it's always been like crucial to force mission to really like you know open up access to science and uh, and and allow like better ways in which we can do science rather than with the somewhat outdated tools that we currently have mm -hmm. in our hand um and so yeah i would say it's it's been pretty natural and then last year at east denver we were collaborating um east denver is one of the main kind yeah. of you know ethereum events um uh in in the world really and uh, and and last year we thought okay it's 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 now time we see or we know of a few projects in that space uh, and we kind of um joined forces with a few other organizations yeah. Yeah. in that space to start like a an entire conference track basically on this topic and that then became uh, the first of uh of then many many events that were side events of large crypto conferences yeah. um in that year um and uh and, and yeah and so i think over that year really like this ecosystem of of side projects has has grown rather rapidly and and really wonderfully and so we're we're pretty excited about the entire space at the same time you know the jury is still out it's it's mm -hmm. been maybe like a little yeah it's been about a year yeah. or something that like um right. this label existed and then you know a few <laughs> early projects and it existed now for two years but it's certainly still very early stage and you, you mentioned your collaboration in Endeavor. Have you found that 
probably post-pandemic, there's more and more collaboration going on. Uh, would you say that's the case with the Foresight Institute? Yes and no. Um, it's probably different kind. Like I'm always shocked by how major conference tracks still have not opened back up yet. Like um, it's it's I don't know why it's so, so sticky, but you know, especially I think really large organizations that were very important for pushing major fields along are still kind of dragging their feet or like maybe have even lost crucial personnel or have lost crucial just mm. capacity to kind of kick back into action. So I think some of the main machinery that we were still relying upon and we're still taking for granted to really advance science and tech mm. is just kind of like still eroded. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that's, you know, sad, but it's also an opportunity because like, I think smaller, more agile organizations like us can like sometimes yeah. fill in the cracks. But on the other hand, like, you know, like it is a big loss, like it is a real loss. And yeah. um, and yeah, so I, I do think that, yeah, it's a mixed bag. I think post-COVID like this. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, this series is about um, newer tech. And as you know, we're talking to newer scientists, newer startups and scale-ups, as well as newer surgeons and newer engineers. You, you've briefly mentioned it uh, at the start, but can you expand on what Foresight Institute is doing in this space? I know it's it's one of your technical group headings. So what are you doing? Yeah, so um, newer technology, the space is very, very large. And I should preface anything with what I'm saying is that I'm not a neuroscientist, right. uh, nor would I consider myself a neurotechnologist. But um, I think, you know, what me or Serge Foster can do is kind of like weave different threads within Mm -hmm. newer technology together that don't really have um let's say like a an obvious uh, other container to flourish in yeah. um and so we've always been really interested in like what is possible on the edges of newer technology like what are potentially projects uh, or people that could um really flourish with just a little bit more more support and for that we've uh, had this newer technology group um that in collaboration with Amanda Kerner from carbon copies which is uh, a whole brain emulation like organiz like advocacy organization mm -hmm. and uh, we've just like gradually you know like gathered individuals and, and and gathered projects and so forth that are also trying to push the envelope in neurotechnology development and then um we are we've always been very close collaborating with over the years over yeah, maybe five mm -hmm. six years at this point with Anders Sandberg who's from the Future of Humanity Institute and uh, he's a Fawcett senior fellow as well and he published in 2007, I think, um, the whole brain emulation roadmap. And so that was very early days, 2007, they had different technologies at, at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and that roadmap was about, you know, what, if anything, can we do to advance technologies that would make the emulation of a whole human brain uh, possible? Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, a pretty, it's a, it was a pretty out there question to ask back then, it still is. It's not like we're like um, so close that it's going to happen tomorrow. But at the same time, we've now have so many new technologies that we think it's uh, it's it warrants to ask the question again. Mm -hmm. Are there now new things we could be doing to push this field forward? Mm -hmm. Are there new ethical implications? Are there new risk considerations that we need to take? Um, just generally, can we do a revamp of this roadmap that was done back in the days? Because especially with computing technology speeding up so fast yeah, yeah. and with them having more of a neural uh, inspired, <laughs> very broadly based uh, approach, 
I think it it, it certainly warrants. Uh, well, it, it's just time to ask the question again. Um, and so that's what we did basically. And and I sh sorry, I should say that a particular interest also in in doing this workshop is yes. um, the AI safety angle. And so, you know, I think uh, it's been becoming crucially aware even to the wider public that there's okay. just a lot yeah. happening in AI right now. And so to the extent that, you know, human brains are intelligent, mm -hmm. speeding up whole brain emulation or like, you know, early paths mm -hmm. towards that goal can definitely be like a potential still, you know, very out there, but a potential safety hedge, maybe even around artificial intelligences that we are developing. Mm. Uh, for my listeners, that's the, the what um, Alison's just been talking about. That's the the whole brain emulation workshop, um, the forthcoming um, workshop. When is it? Um, how can people get involved? Is it um, purely online? Is it a hybrid? Can you just give us some information about that? I'd, I'd like to put a, a link, if I may, in your show notes, if that's okay with you, about that workshop. But can, can you just give us that information? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's going to be held in May, like end of May, mm -hmm. um, and 22nd to 23rd uh, in the UK. So uh, outside of Oxford uh, in a venue. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a relatively small workshop, but people can apply. There's an application form online. Yep. Um, it's on our website. If one goes to events, um, you know, it's in the drop-down menu pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, we encourage people working in science and tech related yes, to yeah. um, whole brain emulation, like in, in a broader sense. So that could be computing technologies or could be technologies that are relevant for, um, yeah, yeah, really relevant from the, from the neuroscience lens. Mm -hmm. um, so either way, like, I think if, if you work are, are in you, that area, we, mm -hmm. yeah. Are, are you still looking for sponsors for this event? I mean, sponsors are always useful to the extent that they allow us on the back end to pay more flights for younger participants that are joining. So um, absolutely, yes. if, you know. So, if, so, if, if, so, so, so please, listeners, organizations, if you'd like more details about this event or if you'd like to sponsor it, I think they speak to, is it Niham or something? I forgot her name now. Yes, uh, Neef. Neef. Uh, her name has uh, a really interesting pronunciation, and she's yes. from New Zealand, and she is uh, doing most of our um, yes, yeah, our uh, our our outreach and uh, external email address in, in your show notes for that. If you want to get involved and you are sort of the right fit for the for this workshop, get in touch, um, uh, and all the information will be in the show notes. Excellent. Okay, um, where are we now? Ugh. This, this last question um, that I ask the guests in the series, um, and it's for them to visualize where they see neurotech in, say, five to 10 years from now. So, what are your thoughts, Alison? Can you visualize this, um, especially um, on developments in sort of subcategories like health and performance and social? Where do you see neurotech going? Yeah, so uh, again, I'm not. Uh... I really have my hands get, getting my hands dirty in the neurotech lab but uh, from a bird's eye perspective I think you know I could see a like different tools even within the molecular machines group so people that are working on mm -hmm. um, like new detection uh, tools uh, and, and even some new intervention tools uh, within our molecular nanotechnology I could see these tools becoming really quite um, interesting for 
neuroscience and neurotech development, same for computing technologies, just becoming much, much, much better. Um, and I think that will really speed up progress in neurotechnologies. Now, that again has like really interesting downstream effects for mm -hmm. anything that we care about in aging, right? Like I think yeah. one big thing that we, or that some of us really, really painfully see is that at the end of the day, <laughs> um, you know, even if our bodies are still intact, it's our brain that goes. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously like our brain is part of our bodies and to that extent, but like, I think this kind of like um, brain aging is something that is still mm -hmm. really untapped and because it's so hard to understand the brain. Um, and so I think anything that, you know, we can do on a neuroscience lens to really keep our brain functioning, to keep it healthy, mm -hmm. uh, to keep it like intact, uh, to prevent memory loss, uh, to really keep it, uh, you know, keep it on, keep it running um, mm -hmm. in a positive mm -hmm. way. I think that will have major implications for uh, for health tech and, you know, and and honestly, just for the level of um, level of like happiness and uh, in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in humans alive today. Like I think, you know, as you know, I think, you know, when the brain, yeah, when the brain is not, the, the brain is kind of like the lens through which we filter everything, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that mm -hmm. anything that we can do there, if it's from a brain aging perspective, or frankly, from, you know, like a perspective that improves our mental health or even cognition yeah. eventually, yeah. all of these, I think, are changes that have dramatic impacts of, on how we perceive everything else. So I think um, if we get that one right, or like if we get it less wrong, <laughs> then, <laughs> um, then I think we have much to look forward to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, what about social um, in, in terms of neurotech? How, how do you see that developing over the years? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I have perhaps less high hopes that we can fix civilization by all, you know, becoming um, more mindful. Um, I think that that would be really nice. I certainly don't think that this will never happen. I'm just not sure if we have um, the time at hand um, to make this a viable option, I think. Oh, um, this is, this but is I not think... the Positive Foresight Institute language, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. It's like, I mean, I just want you look, I just want to be, you know, be honest here yeah. and not be Pollyannish. And I think that <laughs> there, there is some really interesting work happening, even like in the psychedelic community you know that are trying to really uh, get folks to be you know a little bit less traumatized and le less depressed and i totally salute mm -hmm. this work like there's nothing um there's nothing I, I welcome more than people just being able to kind of like live their lives without um kind of like the you know the constraints of and the straitjackets of depression and so forth i'm just not sure whether um that's scalable enough that if we all did that more we could really kind of like get to a civilization in time and like um, and rearrange many of the structures that we've built over such a long time that it actually makes a difference on the timeline that we have mm -hmm. currently. And um, because I think many of the, much of the world is just really run through the institutions that we cooperate through and they, you know, have been long evolved. Mm -hmm. They rely on specific incentives and those incentives are relatively strong. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so so I think that, you know, we should definitely try to pursue this route. Um, I, I'm just not sure how much, on a large scaling social level, you know, it would have an impact in shaping the meta future that basically, we have. Yeah, you're not blindly optimistic, but you hope um, for the best in, in terms of what you've just said there. Absolutely, yes.
<laughs> okay, well, let's end up. Let's end on a positive note. Um, let's end this episode of Headstore and, and look to the future. So, so what plans do you have for Foresight Institute that you'd like to share with my listeners, or perhaps for Alison Dewitt? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think that, um, on the long run, me personally, and I can't speak for everyone. I think at Foresight, even you know, we have a very diverse team, but. I'm really interested in allowing folks to live a more kind of like, you know, freer, more flourishing life mm -hmm. um, on an individual and on a civilizational level. So I don't, you know, I don't think we can get to a future that, um, you know, is like a utopia that is seen by everyone as like, mm. you know, equally uh, appealing and being, while being very concrete. But I think we can get to a future in which different futures can coexist and cooperate with each other. So I think we almost have as many ideas of utopia as we have people that are alive right now. Um, and I think that's a good thing. We like I certainly value pl value plurality. Um, and I think that if we can get to a world in which more people can live the lives that they choose and being empowered to do so uh, and being able to really like live them also from a science and technological level, so not being kind of like constrained with the current kind of like lack of technological sophistication that we have, um, then I think I would be extremely happy. Um, and I think that currently, you know, we have so many different ideas about the future already, but they're currently still biting each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to get to a world where they can coexist peacefully with each other and where they can even, you know, cooperate and flourish in tandem uh, and together in collaboration with each other. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we're really far away from that. I think it really just um, requires us being able to live a bit more independently of like uh, of kind of like the you know more let's say yeah externalities uh, of futures mm -hmm. that others are creating um and it requires us to also find better ways to collaborate and cooperate with others that are aligned because there's so many uh, people in this globe and and we still haven't really figured out how to kind of make the best of all these positive some interactions that could be happening across folks mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. i think that yeah a future that allows like many many futures to bloom and mm -hmm. um, which is often called this kind of like notion of paridotopia basically a world in which um you know we gradually climb Pareto preferred hills as a civilization so in which we gradually have interactions that uh, are like gradually or like more and more preferred by their participants um or at least not just preferred by any of them um that would be a really great future to work towards Right. So that's a fairly positive ending to this, a hopeful ending to this, an existential hope, I should say, ending to this. Alison DeWitman, a great conversation today on Hess Talk. Um, many thanks for your partnership for this series and many thanks for your time and insights. Yeah, thanks a ton for having me on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.